Well, I suppose we should get started here. A little bit late, but... We decided to take our kids up to the uh, gondola, and we were up there at 1 o'clock this afternoon, and all of a sudden realized, oh my goodness, we better get down. So, uh, anyway, but we made it. Uh, Jamie wanted me to pass on that she's made extra handouts. So, if any of you are missing any of the handouts uh, from yesterday or this morning... Um, and, and there are still some uh, available. Remember, today we're using a continuation. It's one handout for the whole day. Jamie has them right back there. Yep. Yeah, just raise your hand if you need a handout. All right, well, uh, the content, what I was planning to talk about this afternoon, based on some um, interesting conversations that I've had with several of you um, yesterday and then um, again this morning, um, I thought because some of these questions came up, I'd like to um, like to just go over a couple of other things. Uh, someone came up and was just asking me about the, uh, the way that Moses talked with God, the way that Job talked with God, and I briefly made the mention about, about the Psalms, and um, why, don't we, uh, why don't I have you turn, if you have your Bibles, to Psalms 139, and I, I think it is fascinating to look into God's friends. David, remember, a man after God's own heart, and we see the way that David at times would talk with God. Of course, not all the Psalms are written by David, and actually, before we read this, uh, why don't we... Have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Father, our desire again during this time is to see you more clearly. We realize that none of, you, none of us see you and your character with perfect clarity. We're all trying to see. Please open our minds during this time. Please give me the words, the ideas, and may the questions and, and all of us as we're thinking about this May you be revealed to us. We love you. Amen. Well, this is a very interesting psalm, Psalm 139. And I'll read the first eight verses here. This is a theme that is so familiar to many of the psalms. And it starts out, Lord, you have examined me and you know me. Remember, we talked about this yesterday morning. 
And David acknowledges, God knows everything about him. You know everything I do from far away. You understand all my thoughts. You see me, whether I am working or resting. You know all my actions. Even before I speak, you already know what I will say. You are all around me on every side. You protect me with your power. Your knowledge of me is too deep. It is beyond my understanding. Where could I go to escape from you? Where could I get away from your presence? If I went up to heaven, you would be there. If I lay down in the world of the dead, you would be there. And this psalm goes on and on and on with David acknowledging, okay, God, you know what's on my mind. You know me. You know me. All right, so skip ahead to verse um, 16. Kind of mine starts here with a sentence in the middle of the verse. The days allotted to me had all been recorded in your book before any of them ever began. Oh, God, how difficult I find your thoughts. How many of them there are. If I counted them, they would be more than the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. All right, so um, David here, recognizing over and over and over, God knows everything about him. And it's almost as if at this point, David says, well, God, since you know my deepest inner thoughts, let me share my deepest inner thoughts with you. Verse 19, oh, God, how I wish you would kill the wicked. How I wish violent people would leave me alone. They say wicked things about you. They speak evil things against your name. Oh, Lord, how I hate those who hate you. How I despise those who rebel against you. I hate them with a total hatred. I regard them as my enemies. Okay, there it is. He's just unloaded all of this. And then he turns back. Examine me, O God, and know my mind. Test me and discover my thoughts. Find out if there is any evil in me, because it sounds like there might be, and guide me in the everlasting way. And so so many of these psalms, uh, for example, uh, one that is probably uh, written by Jeremiah, where the wish is that the babies would be dashed against the stones. Um, the, the problem with picking a verse like that out, um, out of the context is that we would come to the conclusion that at times it is appropriate to wish for the babies to be dashed against the stones. And that at times it is appropriate to hate our enemies with a total hatred. Now we have the ideal though, Jesus on the cross, he forgave his enemies. Uh, And so I think the the Psalms are a model in the sense that when we come to God in prayer, I mean, let's say someone has just really irritated you all day and you you have just had uh, um, hateful thoughts to that person and it's just been working against you and you're angry, pride has flamed up, all of these evil things. And so you're getting ready to go to bed and you kneel down and what do you say? Do you pray for the missionaries and for a number of other things? Now, we should pray for the missionaries. I didn't really mean that as a joke, but um, what does God, does he want us to come to him in all honesty and say, God, I, I hate this person. I'm just telling you, that is how I feel. But notice what happens here is as David acknowledges God's knowledge of his thoughts and then out comes the evil that has been on his mind and then comes a wish for restoration and for healing. And so I think it's a model for us of honesty in prayer, coming to God exactly with what is on our mind. And I gave the illustration this morning about coming to a physician. Um, You have knee pain. It's horrible. It's driving you crazy. You've been complaining about it for months and you come to the physician and say, I feel great, no problem. And so you talk with the doctor, he maybe examines you for 20, 30 minutes, and he says, well, you look super to me. 
um, go home. Now, for, uh, for healing, for restoration to occur, we have to open up with God. And maybe let me give you one more example here. Turn to Psalm 77. My Bible, now these words are not inspired, of course, but um, calls this comfort in time of distress. But this sounds like a great time of distress. I cry aloud to God. I cry aloud and he hears me. In times of trouble, I pray to the Lord. All night long, I lift my hands in prayer, but I cannot find comfort. Okay, have you ever experienced that? When I think of God, I sigh. When I meditate, I feel discouraged. Have you ever been there? Is it nice that we have a recorded psalm that identifies where probably many of us have experienced at some point? He keeps me awake all night. I am so worried that I cannot speak. I think of days gone by and remember years of long ago. I spend the night in deep thought. I meditate. And this is what I ask myself. Will the Lord always reject us? Will he never again be pleased with us? Has he stopped loving us? Does his promise no longer stand? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has anger taken the place of his compassion? Then I said, what hurts me most is this, that God is no longer powerful. Ooh, ouch. I will rem- and then, but then there's a turning point. I will remember your great deeds, Lord. I will recall the wonders you did in the past. I will think about all that you have done. I will meditate on all your mighty acts. Everything you do, O God, is holy. No God is as great as you. I'm feeling better. You are the God who works miracles. You showed your might among the nations. By your power, you saved your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid, and the depths of the sea trembled. The clouds poured down rain. Thunder crashed from the sky, and lightning flashed all around. The crash of your thunder rolled out, and flashes of lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. You walked through the waves. You crossed the deep sea, but your footprints could not be seen. You led your people like a shepherd with Moses and Aaron in charge. And again, a model prayer. David comes very discouraged, very, very discouraged. But as he talks, as he works it out, as he continues the dialogue with God, things come to his mind about the mighty acts of God in the past. And he remembers this. And then he remembers something else. And by the end of the prayer, uh, his feeling of deep depression and discouragement, um, again, is, is better. So, so I think in that sense, I, I love that these friends of God speak so honestly to God. Well, let's get back to our handout here. Uh, we'd finished with God the iconoclast. And I realize this next section could be larger. Um, but I entitled this God's destructive acts or could we say God's protective acts? Let's, let's go with the, probably the best example of this, the flood. And we read about this awful time. I mean, just, it's amazing. After the creation, God said seven times, it is good, it is good, everything is good. And then within a few chapters, uh, we reach this point. So Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how evil humans had become on the earth. All day long, their deepest thoughts were nothing but evil. The Lord was sorry that he had made humans on the earth. And he was heartbroken. So he said, I will wipe off the face of the earth, these humans that I created. I will wipe out not only humans, but also domestic animals, crawling animals and birds. I'm sorry that I made them. But the Lord was pleased with Noah. 
No, the, the question I have, and we do have a microphone here, so if, if you have a question, just, just raise your hand and Jamie will, um, will find you. But what are your thoughts about the flood? Uh, certainly this is uh, troubling to many. Um, is it that evil had reached a certain point? And if evil reaches a certain point, then God must act in this way. Or, or how have you put together the flood? I'm oh, sorry, we have a, a microphone right here from Jamie. And I didn't realize we're recording this, so. I think that's true. Now, um, have there been times when evil... Uh, you know, we think of the Holocaust or, or some of the worst moments in human history. Um, why did God act at this time and perhaps not at other times? Now, we're, I realize we're trying to put ourselves uh, here in the mind of God, which, you know, but I, but I think he encourages, encourages us to do that. But um, any other thoughts about about the flood? I thought I saw a hand over here somewhere. Yeah. And, Yeah, and the time would seem to have come. Let, let's look at these next couple of verses before we get to the other comments. But you'd mentioned God is protecting some people. Well, look at the, the description of Noah. Noah had no faults and was the only good man of his time. Now, had God waited until the last possible moment? He lived in fellowship with God, but everyone else was evil in God's sight and violence had spread everywhere. God looked at the world and saw that it was evil for the people were all living evil lives. God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to all people. I will destroy them completely because the world is full of their violent deeds. And the Lord said to Noah, go into the boat with your whole family. I have found that you are the only one in the whole world who does what is right. Now, what would have happened had God not sent the flood? Okay, we have one man and his family that has preserved the knowledge of God. Okay. Would that knowledge of God been preserved through the generations at, at the rate that things were going? Yes. Well, there's a promise in Genesis 3.15 that I think is exactly the right size for the people that were going to choose. Yeah, this kind of gets to God's foreknowledge a little bit. Had he known that, boy, about 100,000 people are going to respond to this message, well, how many boats would he have had Noah build? But um, um, so that's a good point. The other thing is, um, was everyone that got on the boat good? Ham, you know, even think about Noah afterward, um, had some problem with alcohol apparently. Um, so by, by converse, was everyone that didn't get on the boat bad? Well, we might assume, but I mean, can you imagine uh, maybe there's a, a little boy or something who just said, uh, you know, Daddy, I believe Noah. I went on the boat. And his dad said, sorry. Um, so, you know, we can't necessarily say that everyone that was evil died in the flood and that all the people that got on the boat were good. But it was 120 years that the message was given again and again and again, a very long time for people to respond. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yes. And Jesus had not yet come, right? All the answers that we have to the issues in the great controversy about the character of God, the principle of his kingdom, uh, I mean, the universe is pretty much in the dark at this point. And Satan, I'm sure, is leveling. Look at the, what's going on in the world. It's all God's fault. 
And so God really sends um, a rescue boat, so to speak, the last man with the knowledge of God, to preserve that knowledge because he had not yet come to answer those questions, which I guess would bring up um, your question first. Mm-hmm. Right. And I like so much that when Jesus talked with people, um, he didn't say, now first, uh, have a seat. Let's go through about 25 points that I'd like to make sure that you're clear on uh, before we go any further. Um, I was going to mention, though, based on what you uh, said, is um, we had discussed that um, the answers that we have were not yet given in this time. Uh, why, why didn't Jesus come during this time? What, what would have happened had Jesus come um, 100 years before the flood? Do you think he would have been killed? Yes. Jesus, God of selfless love, comes to this generation. Um, I think it's quite likely they would have rejected him, don't you think? So why, why the long wait? I was talking with, with you about this the other day, but uh, this seems such a long, drawn-out thing. Why wait until, I mean, 2,000 years seems like a long time ago to us, but from the flood to the cross, uh, why didn't Jesus come during this time? Well, we can, we can speculate anyway. I think if, if Jesus had come during this time, well, it would have been demonstrated that a group of very rebellious people will hate the God of love. And I imagine he would have been killed. Now, I think what is very significant, you imagine the angels watching this. I mean, it is thousands of years of rebellion. I mean, we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, the low, low points, the book of Judges. You know, I mean, it's just awful, the things that happened. But now, what happens? Uh, remember, they come back out of Babylonian captivity. Read the book of Ezra, where he got them to obey. I mean, he pulled their beards out if they didn't obey. I mean, he really whipped them into shape. And then finally, perhaps, the angels look down and see, well, you know, God, here you have a people who finally seem to be getting it. You know, they're trying hard to keep the law. We talked about this yesterday. They keep the Sabbath. They go to church. They pay tithe. Uh, right on down the list, they have mission and outreach projects. Uh, they're, they're keeping the list. God comes to that people who are keeping the list. Now, what does that reveal? I think it reveals that we can keep the list, the right list, but yet if we do not know God, that is, it, it still makes us, turns us into rebels on the inside. Those Pharisees were rebels, were they not? They were keeping the list, but on the inside, they were rebels. So I think it reveals something very, very important that it is more than an external list of things that we do. It is knowing God as a friend. It is that relationship, knowing the truth about his character. And I think that dimension, Jesus coming at that time, uh, is quite significant. I think there was another comment. It is, uh, it is almost a little bit scary when you think about the freedom that we have. And I think many people um, find it just, just a hurdle that, that they can't see over, which is if God is all-powerful, I think we'd all agree God is all-powerful. And if these evil things are going on, I mean, if I am um, you know, in my house and there is someone out there uh, dying who has been maybe hit by a car along the side of the road, um, I would call 911, I would run out and help, I would do all that I could. So we see the suffering and disaster going on in the world. We know God is all-powerful. So if, if my instinct is to help someone in need, how can God watch 
the thing, just every second, the things that are going on. And I think the key dimension here is freedom. And that's a, that's a long concept to explain. And I wouldn't want to tell someone dying in a hospital bed, well, this is all because we're free. But ultimately, um, what has happened is we are free. We have chosen to separate from God. There are horrible natural consequences. But I like your thought that eventually God will have a people, one back to him in the end. Yes? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I mentioned uh, the book of Judges, just mentioning low points here. Uh, the Levite and the concubine. I mean, what a horrible story that is in the book of Judges. What a dark time that was. And uh, Ellen White has the comment that during this time, uh, there was a crisis in heaven among the loyal angels. And they were ready at a moment to step in and end this whole thing. It seemed so despicable to the onlooking universe at that point, and that they were amazed at the long-suffering patience of God in allowing this to continue. They wanted to step in, and God said, no, no, let's wait. Yes? Yes, I believe absolutely that up until this time, there were no resources of heaven that were held back on each individual person that was lost in the flood, that the Holy Spirit, I mean, every effort was being made. And uh, that is a sad commentary. We sometimes think the Holy Spirit didn't arrive until after Jesus left. Well, he's right there. We read about him in the book of Psalms. Um, and so it's just too bad that we've been so stubborn and, uh, and unwilling to respond over the course of history. Well, um, the, the second, or I guess the next point here that I wanted to bring up, and this is such a common theme in the Old Testament, is God speaks a language that we can understand. Okay, I could have made this section much longer. As I was just telling someone before I started today, uh, for me, being a parent has really helped me to identify much with the Old Testament. All right, you, speak, you tailor your words and the things that you say differently for uh, little children. Right? You want them to understand. It would sound ridiculous if you said those same words uh, to a mature adult. When someone is spiritually immature, well, you may have to, to use different methods. And so this verse in Hosea 4.16 I think is very telling. The people of Israel are as stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? Now, when we are as stubborn as a mule, will God speak the language that a mule can understand? Does God say, you know, my way or the highway? You know, you, you get it only, uh, only words of love. If you don't respond to words of love, I'm certainly not going to risk my reputation by raising my voice. I'm not going to risk my reputation by doing anything that would appear severe or harsh. Or does a God of love take that risk, so to speak, by talking language that people can understand? Let's give some examples. At Mount Sinai, Exodus 19.9, the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will believe you from now on. I think this is very important. Okay, why did God come the way he did to Mount Sinai? Why not come the way he did on the Mount of Olives or Sermon on the Mount? Uh, Blessed are the meek and, and give them that talk. Why did he come in fire and shake the mountain? Well, here, Moses, you know what? These people need to listen to you. They need to believe you. And so we're going to have a show of force now. And it was quite a show of force. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. A thick cloud appeared on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast was heard. All the people in the camp trembled with fear. 
Moses led them out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had come down on it in fire. The smoke went up like a smoke of a furnace, and all the people trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet became louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. Now, do you think God uh, overdid it? He did come in human form, remember? And he spoke with um, uh, Abraham. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, he came to Abraham. Remember, Abraham went off and they cooked a calf. And we imagine God sitting there patiently. And, uh, you know, why didn't he say to Abraham, you know, we have better food in heaven. Let me just touch this rock and we'll have something much better. But no, he condescended and waited for this uh, calf to be cooked. But, but in this case, he didn't come in that way. He came in power. Did he overdo it? What were the people doing 40 days later? Were they so scared by this that they were scared into perfect obedience for a year, two years? They were dancing around a golden calf 40 days later. Right? So did God go too far in shaking the mountain? No. Now, he was trying to get their attention. He was trying to get them to respect Moses. Um, and he did scare them. But it just—it didn't seem that it worked, did it? Well, it's interesting that uh, when we look at the rules that were given around this time, and I just—I listed a few here in your handout, it would suggest the condition of the people at that time. Now, if the people were in perfect obedience, if they went out of Egypt saying, you know, our motto is love God with all our hearts and love our enemies, we're going into the promised land to spread love and goodness and truth. And to tell everyone how good God is, that's our mission. Uh, would he have scared the people to death at Mount Sinai? No, let's, let's read about these people and the hard words that God had to give them. Whoever hits his father or his mother is to be put to death. Okay, that was probably going on. Whoever curses his father or his mother is to be put to death. Right? How do you speak? I mean, a, a teacher in a classroom where the kids are in just utter chaos and rebellion. And this teacher maybe is just the nicest teacher in the world. Um, you know her, kind person. And can she stand up and say, class, let's be quiet. Um, or will she have to raise her voice and maybe even scare the children and maybe after they're quiet and they're sitting, they're a little scared and after she gains their respect, then what's the first thing she'll do? There is no need to be afraid but I needed to get your attention. Or the school building is burning down. You know, should the teacher not pound on the table and get out? You know, I think it's the only thing to do. Well, look again at the other descriptions. Exodus 22. Put to death any woman who practices magic. Put to death anyone who has sexual relations with an animal. Condemn to death anyone who offers sacrifices to any god except me, the Lord. Do not have sexual intercourse with any of your relatives. Do not disgrace your father by having intercourse with your mother. You must not disgrace your own mother. No man or woman is to have sexual relations with an animal. And as you recall, this is quite detailed. Um, I just listed Leviticus 13 as a whole chapter on uh, related um, subjects. Okay, And even in the commandments here, do not make for yourself images of anything in heaven or on earth or in the water under the earth. Do not bow down to any idol or worship it because I am the Lord your God. I tolerate no rivals. I bring punishment on those who hate me and on their descendants down to the third and fourth generation. Now, is, is this 
absolutely true. During that time, if a man was evil and he worshipped idols, would God count down the generations, four generations, and maybe this is even a good person, four generations down, and God would punish that person? Well, we read in Ezekiel later on where God is very clear. Uh, I do not punish the sons for the sins of their father. But again, is God speaking a language they can understand? And I think uh, perhaps they were not uh, ready to hear the message that, um, you know, if you are a drunk and you come home every night and beat your children, uh, that results in horrible consequences for their children and for their children. And we know this now in you know, psychology that, uh, that these kinds of things has a natural, absolute effect on subsequent generations. So I think God here is speaking a language they can understand, not arbitrarily punishing several generations down the road. Well, um, we read on. When the people heard the thunder and the trumpet blast and saw the lightning and smoking mountain, they trembled with fear and stood a long way off. They said to Moses, If you speak to us, we will listen, but we are afraid that if God speaks with us, we will die. They were having a Mount Sinai experience here. But look at Moses replied, don't be afraid. Who's the one person not afraid here? Moses. Who is God's friend? Moses. And he knows there is no need to be afraid. God has only come to test you and to make you keep on obeying him so that you will not sin. And we, again, we know that that didn't last for even uh, 40 days because in Exodus 32.1, we do not know what happened to this man Moses. He went up to this mountain. So make us a God to lead us. And they're worshiping a golden calf. Now, one of you asked me uh, yesterday about, about the law and um, the reason for the law and all of these rules. And uh, let's just, I think this is important that we go through this a little bit. So I've uh, just thumbed through a few verses. Go to 1 Timothy if you have your Bibles. I really missed my printer on this trip because now when I think of an Ellen White quote, I have to handwrite it the night before, which is much slower. Let's see, this is 1 Timothy... 1 Timothy 1, verse 9. Actually, let's start with verse 8. We know that the law is good if it is used as it should be used. It must be remembered, of course, that laws are made not for good people, but for lawbreakers and criminals, for the godless and sinful, for those who are not religious or spiritual for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the immoral, for sexual perverts, for kidnappers, for those who lie and give false testimony, or those who do anything else contrary to sound doctrine. Okay? This is the reason for the law. Now, um, this does not diminish the importance or the significance of the Ten Commandments, but did God in heaven sit the angels down when there was perfect peace before Lucifer had rebelled and say, look, no stealing... Uh, no adultery. Did he go through the same list when there was perfect peace and harmony and happiness in heaven? Now, that doesn't, again, diminish the significance of the Ten Commandments. But um, the law was given because we needed it. And, and let's go to Galatians 1. This has been a, a chapter of 
contention. For those of you who know uh, Adventist history, Galatians 1, I'm sorry, Galatians 3, verse 19. And Paul is going through this long description and then asks the question, 3.19, What then was the purpose of the law? It was added in order to show what wrongdoing is and it was meant to last until the coming of Abraham's descendant to whom the promise was made. All right, we go on to uh, verse 23. 3.23, Before the time for faith came, before the time that we trusted God, the law kept us all locked up as prisoners until this coming faith should be revealed. And so the law was in charge of us. Now the word here is the pedagogue, which you know is was to lead the student to the teacher, make sure they got to school. was not the teacher, but was to make sure the student got to the teacher. And so the law was in charge of us until Christ came in order that we might then be put right with God through faith. Now that the time for faith is here, the, no lo- the law is no longer in charge of us. It is through faith that all of you are God's children in union with Christ Jesus. All right, so now when that student now loves coming to the teacher, um, you know, and is going to come to the teacher and learn and do all the right things, um, yes, the law is still true, absolutely. But the person, this student does not need the pedagogue now to take his hand and say, come on, we're going uh, to the teacher. And so the question that came up here uh, in 1888 and around this time was, this uh, law, the, the schoolmaster, is this just the ceremonial law or would this include the Ten Commandments as well that were added? And um, I realize no one's an absolute authority, but Ellen White, uh, I think, would be a, a good person to, to wonder what she had to say about this. And her comment was, I am asked concerning the law in Galatians, what law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? My answer, both the ceremonial and the moral code of the Ten Commandments were added because we needed it. And um, I find this, uh, this next one quite revealing. This is in Mount of Blessing, page 109. But in heaven, service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening of something new. I'm sorry, something unthought of. In their ministry, the angels are not as servants, but as sons. There is perfect unity between them and their creator. Obedience to them is no drudgery. Love for God makes their service a joy. All right, that's the ideal for us as well. We're not keeping a list and we're worried about the list, but we love God and the list, we still keep the list, right? But we're looking to God and not the list. And then uh, this last quote in Patriarchs and Prophets, if man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision. And if the descendants of Abraham have kept the covenant of which the circumcision was a sign, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity, no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon the tablets of stone. And had people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, again, what are the principles? First four, love for God. Last six, love for your neighbor. Had they kept the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need of the additional directions given to Moses. And how many of you, starting out reading through the Old Testament, getting through all of those additional directions, God had to give many of them. 
but it was necessary for the time. So I think, um, you know, again, as a parent, I've come to admire somewhat God in, in using uh, some of these rules. You know, I have to tell my children, don't run with a pencil, uh, don't play in the cat box, and um, all of these things. And, and if I were to stand up before you and say, now, here's a list, I mean, it would sound ridiculous, right? But there is a time when rules like that are needed for children and for spiritual children. Well, so that's a point about the law. Let's um, go on to a second point in this category here of God speaking a language we can understand. God's fearsome language. And in our last uh, section here today, if we have time, I want to talk about God's anger. But I just thought this one verse is a good illustration of it in Judges 10, where God says to his people, So I will not rescue you anymore. Okay, Judges, one of the darkest books. And in the middle of this, God says, I'm done. I'm not going to rescue you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them rescue you in your hour of distress. But the Israelites pleaded with the Lord and said, We have sinned. Punish us as you see fit. Only rescue us today from our enemies. And then the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and served the Lord. And I love this next sentence here. And he, God, was grieved by their misery. Okay, this was, this was very difficult for God. But the question is, did God rescue them anymore? Again and again and again and again and again. But yet the word is, I will not rescue you anymore. Okay, there's some words, but it really provoked a response, didn't it? They turned back to God. They gave up their idols. And for a time they served God, and they slipped right back into it again. And then, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Fearsome words, but it had its desired effect. And God helped them countless times, hundreds of times um, further on. What about the plagues of Egypt? Another example, I think, of God speaking a language we can understand. Now, we think about the situation here where the people are in bondage in Egypt. And, of course, in Egypt, they had dozens of gods. And how do you rate the effectiveness of a god? Well, let's put it this way. The god of the Israelites, their people are servants. These gods of the Egyptians, their people are the masters. Okay, who's stronger? Well, it would appear that the the gods of the Egyptians are stronger. And so... um, Could Moses have come to Pharaoh with gentle words and um, Pharaoh would have listened and let the people go? I mean, did he not have to come with not only fearsome language, but fearsome actions? And I'm not going to go through all of these, but each one of these plagues were directed against a specific God in Egypt. And so what God is doing here is very systematically dismantling, destroying, exposing every god in Egypt and proving that they are absolutely impotent. You know what? I'm the only true god, and if power is the only language that you understand, okay, I'm going to show you some power. Okay, so we go through each of the gods. I mean, what would it do to you if you're worshiping the god of the frogs? There was a god of the frogs. Let's see, what was the name of Heka, the toad goddess, a symbol of resurrection. All right, this is one of your important gods. And... The plague of the frogs is over and there are thousands and thousands of dead frogs lying all over the place. What would be going through your mind? Well, there's this God of Israel um, who brought this plague. Here are our gods or the God of the the frogs didn't seem very powerful in this case. And, you know, it really smells around here. And, you know, you just think maybe this would have an impact on the people. 
And so uh, on the, uh, the Passover, Exodus 12, 12, on that night I will go through the land doing what? Punishing all the gods of Egypt. Right? And don't you think God would have loved it had the Egyptians come to the conclusion, uh, boy, we've been worshiping nothing. There is no God of the sun, God of the frog, God of flies, God of the Nile. There is one true God, and it looks like it's the God of the Israelites. So I think God is trying to win them. But, of course, uh, they didn't respond. But again, uh, hard methods, but I think God did what it took. He dismantled and destroyed those false gods. But, of course, it's amazing, but you know they leave Egypt, and weren't those people always wanting to go back to Egypt despite all of this? Well, we read in Exodus 9, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. Now notice the three ways that Moses describes this. Okay, He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. Now, surely Moses knew what he was doing here as he wrote this, right? Three ways. God hardened his heart. His heart was hard. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Um, which one is true? Or all three? Or, or um, how have you put this hardening of hearts together? Because it can be quite a stumbling block if we think that uh, perhaps God will say, look, I need to accomplish something. Uh, Pharaoh, it's too bad you're the king, but I'm going to have to harden your heart so that I can do something. Um, is that is that the reality of what happened, or, or what do you? Th- mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we we talked um, uh, a lot about God. What does He do? He gives us evidence. Did Pharaoh have a lot of evidence? Boy, did God give him a lot of evidence, right? And so God, in a sense, did it, right? He brought the evidence. He stimulated this process, which, as you said, because Pharaoh rejected this evidence, he hardened his heart, and his heart was hard. So God did it. He brought this evidence to Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh had to do something. He chose to reject it. He hardened his heart. His heart was hard. Best illustration I've heard of this is, um, you know, if you take a lump of clay, a lump of butter, and you put them in the oven and turn the heat up, uh, what happens? Butter melts, the clay hardens. All right, so let's just say the clay and the butter, this is a a human mind. And God gives evidence, turning the heat up. All right, some will respond. Okay, their heart will be melted and they will respond. Some are hardened by the evidence. Okay, so yes, God did it. It's our choice. We're completely free. Um, But, you know, it has a different reaction on different people. Yes. well, two, two quick examples to finish off um, this section. Samson. Now remember, God of the Old Testament is Jesus. All right? So suddenly the power of the Lord, let's just say Jesus, made him strong. He found a jawbone of a donkey that had recently died. He reached down and picked it up and killed a thousand men with it. Now, have you ever wondered why would God choose to bless Samson with strength to kill a thousand people. You know, why not bless Samson as, um, you know, God's trying to decide, I think I'm going to make Samson the kindest man who ever lived. 
Samson, the kindest, most gentle man who has ever lived. And he would be known in children's stories up until today as, uh, you know, there was a great, kind man, Samson. Why did God choose to bless him instead with strength? Horrible strength to do something like this. It wasn't at God's call to bless Samson with the strength. Why not bless him with something else if he had the ability to, uh, to abuse it as he did? Well, when was this book written here? Judges. We mentioned this several times. Okay, in terms of light and darkness. Okay, light, spiritual truth about God, his character, or darkness, spiritual darkness about God and his character. Is this a time of the light or a time of darkness? Great, great darkness, horrible darkness. Um, now, when people are spiritually in a very, very dark, deep cave, um, can would it make any sense for God to bring them immediately into the bright noonday sun of truth? And during this time, would a message, you know what, God is kind, gentle, forgiving, loving, would that have had any meaning whatsoever during this time? I mean, God is losing all of his people, right? And so God, I think, in essence, uses a dim light, which is, I am powerful. And if that is all you're going to respond to, then I am going to respond to you on that level. And wouldn't this have had some impact? Wow, look at this, Samson. Um, well, he serves the God of Israel. And look at this supernatural strength. So God uses uh, power, in this case, uh, to at least... And again, Samson misused it. So let's not say that all the things that Samson did with his power were ordained by God. But uh, God gave him great power as a dim light to speak to a people who would only respond to a very dim light. And I think it's the same case with uh, Elisha. And we read, this is right after the miraculous translation of Elijah. And some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Now, just to convince you that this was a very dark time, if you have your Bibles, um, turn to Second Kings 1. Okay, who is supposed to be the spiritual leader here? You know, the king of Israel. Of course, there were no good kings of Israel. But uh, look how the book of Second Kings opens up. Second Kings one one. After the death of King Ahab of Israel, the country of Moab rebelled against Israel. King Ahaziah of Israel fell off the balcony on the roof of his palace in Samaria and was seriously injured. So he sent some messengers to consult God. No, he sent some messengers to consult Beelzebub, the god of the Philistine city of Ekron, in order to find out whether or not he would recover. So when even the king, during this time, he's not interested in talking with God, let's consult with Beelzebub, uh, that would say this is a very dark time, would it not? And so God again, I mean, do you think God was eager to send those bears out of the forest? No. And I like the fact that Jesus, he never called out any bears to scare or intimidate the people. But uh, Elisha here, it's almost like a time of Noah here. Boy, we've got just a few people who have a knowledge of God. And so God, uh, you know, these people are so unimpressed. Elijah had just gone up to heaven and these youths 
are so unimpressed with this display that they say to Elisha, hey, you go up to Baldi, you go up to. All right, now there, when there is that level of disrespect and disinterest in the true God, will God stoop to measures like this? Well, was Elisha bothered again in his ministry? Was he allowed to continue to preach and to tell people about God? Well, yeah, it did, this did provide some measure of respect for Elisha, didn't it? Um, and it's interesting, you know, we tend to think of miracles as being associated with, if we have lots of trust, there will be lots of miracles. Um, when is a time in the Bible when there were just a high intensity number of miracles? It was right during this time when there was no trust. All right, but God used floating axe heads and all kinds of things with Elisha to just try to get people's attention a little bit. Again, I'm strong, I'm powerful. Can you at least respond to that? And even when Elisha dies, you remember uh, they were having a, uh, they were burying someone else and they're going off on this funeral ceremony and uh, they're going to throw this person into the tomb of Elisha. No, they're going to another tomb, but suddenly they turn around, the Israelites do, and they see the Moabites chasing after them. So out of desperation, they dump this dead body into the grave of Elisha and they're running away from the Moabites and they turn around to look at the Moabites and who do they see? The man they just dumped into Elisha's grave is alive. So now you see not only the Moabites, but this dead man running after you. And it must have been quite terrifying. But um, again, the point is, yeah, God will use lots of these miracles, power, uh, when that's all we'll respond to. Now, I think, and I would love it, if we did not need miracles and demonstration of power, that like Job, we're so settled into the truth that uh, God doesn't need to use those very, very dim light methods. And uh, this verse here in 2 Corinthians, uh, I brought up yesterday morning. Now I've quoted it um, more in its entirety. Paul says, For if the gospel we preach is hidden, it is hidden only from those who are being lost. They do not believe because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. Okay, again, we're contrasting light and dark. Satan keeps us in the dark about God. He keeps them from seeing the light shining on them. The light that comes from the good news about what? The glory of Christ, the character of Christ, the kind of person Christ is, who is the exact likeness of God. The God who said out of darkness the light shall shine is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts to bring us the knowledge of God's glory. And again, where do we see the bright light, the noonday sun, truth about God? Here it is, shining in the face of Christ. All right, so I think uh, I, we oftentimes, and I know telling my kids uh, bedtime stories, that these are these stories of uh, Elisha and the she-bears, these are sometimes more exciting than some of the other stories. But um, we need to see Jesus is the noonday bright sun, truth about God. Some of these other uh, things where God has had to stoop to these kinds of measures, uh, it is a dim light. And again, I think uh, even uh, the wonderful story about David killing Goliath. Well, you read that story. Well, he chopped his head off and, um, uh, you know, I think um, God was pleased that he had a man who was really passionate about serving God. Uh, but again, these violence and so on, these methods um, are a dim light. Well, um, hmm, need to see how much here to go through. Are you tired? Should we stop? <laughs> Let's, let's go a little bit longer here. I, I hate to um, go so long that it's... Um, let me see if there is... Boy, 
I'd like to talk about God's anger. Well, let's see. Well, let, let's go through a little bit. I think this next section is important. God gives bad rules. Okay, that might sound um, somewhat disrespectful. So let's read the verse here. Ezekiel 20, 24 and 25. God talking. I did this. There's a missing T there. I did this because they had rejected my commands, broken my laws, profaned my Sabbath, and worshipped the same idols their ancestors had served. Then I give them, gave them laws that are not good and commands that do not bring life. Wow, what commands would God give that would not be good and that do not bring life? Well, I think we just read some of these commands that he gave uh, at Mount Sinai. But, and again, as a parent, is a command that brings life to a child. Don't run with a pencil in your hand. Don't play in the sandbox. Well, uh, we'll give those bad rules, so to speak. But let's, um, here is an, just an example of God giving in. Okay, when God has the ideal in mind. Okay, when we demand something less than the ideal. A good example of this in 1 Samuel 8, 9. The people demand a king. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. All right, and the words come back, listen to them. Okay, God's talking to Samuel, but give them strict warnings and explain how their kings will treat them. And if you read the rest of this in chapter 8, uh, they, the people knew in detail. You know, he's going to take your women, he'll take your men to fight in the army, he'll raise your taxes, it's going to be horrible. Okay, what do the people say? Well, the people paid no attention to Samuel, but said, no, we want a king so that we will be like other nations with our own king to rule us and to lead us out to war and to fight our battles. All right, and Samuel goes back to God. All right, now pretend you don't know what God said. God has said, this is the ideal. You should not have a king. The people say, we want a king. God says, no, the ideal is you don't have a king. No, he said, do what they want and give them a king. It's a bad idea, but give them a king. And the Bible is a record of God meeting us where we are. And that's why I think God is so easily misunderstood is where we are may be at a horrible place. And so he met them, uh, you know, where they were. And again, having children so helpful. You know, your child has had a horrible, horrible day. Uh, best friend said, you know, I don't have anything to do with you anymore. And your five-year-old in kindergarten comes home and crying and it's been a horrible thing. And it's bedtime, time to brush teeth. And you can just tell this is the last straw. And uh, they just cry at the thought of uh, brushing their teeth. Now, is it good to brush teeth? As a parent, should your children brush your teeth, their teeth every single night? Is that the ideal? Would it be wrong as a parent to say, you know, under the circumstances, yeah, okay, I know they had a candy bar this afternoon, but this is just too much. This is going to tip them over the edge. I'm just going to put them to bed and we'll, we'll have some nice time together. Well, is it wrong to do as a parent, to give in sometimes? Well, God seems to give in. Now, maybe the parallel is not the same here because having a king really was a horrible, horrible thing. You can wake your child up in the morning and brush their teeth and hopefully they don't suffer horrible consequences from that. But God gives in. Parents give in sometimes to less than the ideal. Well, how far did God give in? What about the rule, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? How far from the ideal is that rule? Well, we look at their concept of justice in that time. Joshua 1. And the people tell Joshua, we will do everything you told us and we'll go anywhere you send us. We will obey you just as we always obeyed Moses. And I just 
had to laugh when I read this for the first time. Um, was this not very real? Joshua. And may the Lord your God be with us as he was with Moses. Now listen, whoever questions your authority or disobeys any of your orders will be put to death. Okay, this is the people's idea. And remember, the people at this time, how hardened were they? What would it do to you if uh, you had to go out and fight and not kill you know, by lobbing grenades and bombs, but to actually have to take a sharp spear and kill not only the men, but the women, the babies? Uh, would that not have a very, very harden, hardening influence on you? Okay, how can God reach a people who are so hardened by this life that they led? And so we have rules like this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But of course, this is far, far from the ideal. So Jesus comes along and says in Matthew 5, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now they hadn't heard wrong. Okay, you've heard that that was said, but now I tell you, and then he went on to give them the ideal. Okay, which is basically, look, let's grow up. There was a time when you needed that rule. That time has passed. Time has now come where we love our enemies. Okay, but notice, even in the Old Testament, the ideal is still there. If we look for it, in Exodus 23, if you happen to see your enemy's cow, your enemy's cow or donkey running loose, take it back to him. If his donkey has fallen under its load, help him get the donkey to its feet again. Don't just walk off. And of course, the great commands... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Jesus did not uh, invent those. That's Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.3 and 4. The ideal is still there in the Old Testament. All right? But God, again, had to give the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Another example of this, divorce rules. Okay, and you recall, Jesus, boy, in, this, in Matthew 5, he really... Uh, breaks the paradigm of that time. And he said, it was also said, if anyone divorces his wife, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But now I tell you, if a man divorces his wife for any cause other than her unfaithfulness, then he is guilty of making her commit adultery if she marries again. And the man who marries her commits adultery also. Now, divorce during the Old Testament times was extremely cruel. All right, and uh, a man could just decide, I'm tired of this one, I'm going to take the next one. and you know. So they needed a very hard rule about divorce during that time. And the, so the Pharisees are listening to Jesus and they're saying, but hold on, this is not what we read in the books of Moses, that that's the only reason for divorce. And so some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. And it really was a trap. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Well, what did Moses say about divorce? Jesus asked them. And they replied, well, he permitted it. He said a man merely had to write his wife an official letter of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, and this is so key, he wrote those instructions only as a concession to your hard-hearted wickedness. So in our hard-hearted wickedness, we need all kinds of rules. And he meets us at that very, very low level. Now Jesus has come to tell us the ideal. And of course, the truth, the ideal is always there in the Old Testament. In Malachi, I hate divorce. And you know, marriage, the Sabbath, both instituted at the same time. And um, uh, this, of course, makes God very sad when this happens. Well, fighting, I won't go through all of this with fighting, but I would encourage you to read through these verses here. 
because it's very clear to me, um, well, I shouldn't make such a statement like that. My opinion is that it was never God's plan that they fight their way in. Okay, he was meeting them on a far, far less than ideal means. So we'll go all the way through there, um, that whole section. But the fighting in the Old Testament, it, it is very, very hard. I like Ellen White's comment, it was not his purpose that they should gain the land by warfare, but rather by strict obedience to his commands. If fighting is the only way, well, okay, God would help them fight. But man, did he hate doing it. And I like the fact that he didn't let David build the temple. All right, God going on record and saying, yes, I helped you fight David, but um, I have to say something um, about all this fighting that you did. I hated it. Okay, and the last point here, the cities of refuge. Very, very, very brutal custom. Now, it was a step up from an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, uh, but, but the idea here of the city of refuge was, um, you know, if, if I accidentally uh, killed someone while, you know, pounding in one of these tent pegs, then the relative of that person would be completely in their right, even though it was an accident, to hunt me down and kill me. And so I would have to go off to a designated city, let's say Reno, and stay there and could not leave that city um, until the high priest, uh, whoever the local pastor is in this area, let's say, until he dies, and then I'm free if I'm proven to be innocent. All right? So even though I am innocent, I've got to stay in Reno or else the relatives of that person who was killed would have every right to kill me. Now, God gave the city of refuge. Um, why not just tell them, look, if someone is innocent, if it was an accident, um, you know, they should not uh, be killed. They don't, the, the relatives of this person have no right to do this. Well, look at Ellen White's interpretation of the city of refuge in Patriarchs and Prophets. Six of the cities assigned to the Levites, three on each side of the Jordan, were appointed as cities of refuge to which the manslayer might flee for safety. This merciful provision was rendered necessary by the ancient custom of private, private vengeance. It was rendered necessary because of this custom by which the punishment of the murderer devolved on the nearest relative or the next heir of the deceased. In cases where guilt was clearly evident, it was not necessary to wait for a trial by the magistrates. The avenger might pursue the criminal anywhere and put him to death wherever he should be found. Now listen to this. The Lord did not see fit to abolish this custom, this bad custom, at that time. But he made provision to ensure the safety of those who should take life unintentionally. Now again, do you admire a God who would look at this very, very bad custom and in his wisdom would say, okay, it's too much to handle to abolish every single thing. I mean, we think of polygamy and all the things that were going on. I can't demand this of them at this point. So I'm going to give them something way down here, a city of refuge, and uh, there will come a time when uh, the need for that and all these other things, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, will be gone. But when they needed it, uh, he gave them rules like that. Now, I do want to just very, very quickly, and I'm sorry I'm going so fast here, but um, I, uh, this last point, God's anger, I think is an important subject. We talked about it a little bit um, yesterday. But I want you to appreciate, and if you look for this in the Bible, there are dozens and dozens of examples. What is God's anger? Well, the warning to Judah in Ezekiel 22 prior to the Babylonian captivity. I looked for someone who could build a wall 
who could stand in the places where the walls have crumbled and defend the land when my anger is about to destroy it. But I could find no one. So I will turn my anger loose on them. And like a fire, I will destroy them for what they have done. The sovereign Lord has spoken. Now we need to keep reading here in Ezekiel. Now we're on to chapter 24. Write down today's date because this is the day that the king of Babylonia is beginning the siege of Jerusalem. This is what the sovereign Lord is saying. The city of murderers is doomed. Okay, we read this this morning. I and myself will pile up the firewood. Since we read it this morning, let's just skip down. You will feel the full force of my anger. You will be punished for what you have done. God in his anger, I will punish. I will pile up the firewood. Now, same event described here in 2 Kings. I will abandon the people who survive and will hand them over to their enemies who will conquer them and plunder their land. I will do this to my people because they have sinned against me and have stirred up my anger. Okay, this this concept, anger and God's abandoning, giving up, are associated again and again and again through the Bible. Uh, go back to Ezekiel 21. You will feel my anger when I turn it loose on you like a blazing fire. Okay, what happens when God turns his anger loose on us like a blazing fire? Well, we just read on. And I will hand you over to brutal men, experts at destruction. Again, what really happened with Jerusalem? Did God not remove his protection? He handed them over. He abandoned them, and the results of that were horrible. Okay, Ezekiel 25. I will hand you over to the other nations who will rob you and plunder you, and they did. I will destroy you. Well, he, what did he do? Did he abandon them, or did he destroy them? So completely that you will not be a nation anymore or have a country of your own. Well, again, we read what actually happened to Judah in 2 Kings we read about the Babylonian general, however you say that, advisor to Nebuchadnezzar. He burned down the temple, the palace, and the houses of the important people in Jerusalem. And his soldiers tore down the city walls. And in Jeremiah, the Babylonians burned down the royal palace. Okay, in this very telling verse here in Second Chronicles, so the Lord brought the king of Babylonia to attack them. Okay, did he really? The king killed the young men of Judah, even in the temple. He had no mercy on anyone. Hey, who had no mercy? Young or old, man or woman, sick or healthy, God handed them all over to him. Okay, again, not arbitrarily removing his protection, but when we will not listen, when we reject God again and again, he, he can either begin to pull puppet strings and control us, okay, and God does not, he respects our freedom, or he will um, abandon Okay, more of God's anger. In Deuteronomy, Moses' words, My anger will flare up like fire and burn everything on earth. It will reach to the world below and consume the roots of the mountains. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. Okay, what happens when God's anger burns up like a flaming fire? What happens when God uses all of his arrows against his children? Again, keep reading. Don't stop reading. They fail to see why they were defeated. Okay, well, I thought they were defeated because God got angry and he shot arrows at them. They cannot understand what happened. Why were a thousand defeated by one and 10,000 by only two? Why? The Lord, their God, had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. Okay, again in Deuteronomy, the Lord said to Moses, you will soon die and after your death, the people will become unfaithful to me and break the covenant that I made with them. They will abandon me and worship the pagan gods of the land they're about to enter. 
When that happens, I will become angry with them. What happens when God becomes angry? I will abandon them. And what's the result? And they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them. And then they realize that these things are happening to them. Why? Because I, their God, am no longer with them. Hey, that is God's anger. Hosea 5. I will attack the people of Israel and Judah like a lion. I myself will tear them to pieces and then leave them. When I drag them off, no one will be able to save them. Oh, here it is. I will abandon my people until they have suffered enough for their sins and come looking for me. Perhaps in their suffering, they will try to find me. And Hosea is so moving uh, as it goes on. In Hosea 9, when I abandon these people, terrible things will happen to them. And then in Hosea 11, my people sacrifice to Baal. They burn incense to idols. It will destroy my people. This behavior because they do what they themselves think best. They insist on turning away from me. They will cry out because of the yoke that is on them, but no one will lift it from them. How can I give you up, Israel? How can I abandon you? Do you hear the emotion in God as he is describing? He does not want to let go of his children. All right, and so uh, the, the, if you want to just get the best description of God's anger, Paul, I mean, who knew his Old Testament better than Paul? Puts it all together. And I used to wonder, why in Romans 1 would Paul right away start talking about God's anger? Well, it's been so misunderstood. Romans 1.18, God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sin and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. God punishes them because what can be known about God is plain to them, for God himself made it plain. Okay, how is God's anger revealed? How does God punish? Again, read on. They say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortals or birds or animals or reptile. And so God has, what does he do? Given those people over to the filthy things their hearts desire. He lets them do what they want to do. And they do shameful things with each other. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself, who is to be praised forever. Amen. Because they do this, God has given them over to shameful passions. Because those people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge about God, this is the most important thing. What does he do? He has given them over. He doesn't give them corrupted minds. He gives them over to their own desires and they develop corrupted minds so that they do the things that they should not do. All right. Now, having said all of that, we have to ask, how easily does God get angry and let us go and abandon us? And of course, he is full of compassion and pity, not easily angered. And uh, getting back to this freedom again that we talked about, why would God ever abandon? Why would he ever let go? Again, it has to do with God. We are free. And if we really want to be apart from God, he will let us be free. These words in Jeremiah 34, so strong. God says, very well then, I will give you freedom, the freedom to die by war, disease, and starvation. And unfortunately, uh, we have too often chosen that path. Now, just a last point on anger. Did Jesus ever get angry? He did a few times. What do you think is the, what's the best example of Jesus getting angry? Now, when he went into the temple, now, did he attack the people with the whip or the furniture? It would appear the furniture, that uh, he didn't beat those people. But read the account here in Matthew 21. It's really incredible. 
He comes in and says, It is written in the Scriptures that God said, My temple will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a hideout for thieves. The blind and the crippled came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, who, you know, we read all the accounts of this. What happened? He went into the temple. The guilty people, what did they do? They ran for their life. Now, um, what is the most natural reaction in the world, for a child especially? When a man gets angry, uh, what is the response of a child? Poof, they're out. I mean, just the slightest little bit. You know, even an argument among parents and children, you know, often tend to scatter. So what would it mean? And I guess I should have, um, well, actually, it does. if we just read on, the chief priests and the teachers of the law became angry when they saw the wonderful things he was doing and the children shouting in the temple, praise to David's son. So God in the flesh gets angry. The guilty run for their life. And who comes to him? The sick, the crippled, the children. I mean, does that say that God's anger is somewhat different than our anger? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but I think it's important, especially and if we had time to get into Revelation where we talk about God's anger, we use the whole Bible to interpret the Bible, right? So I think all of these passages are quite relevant uh, as we understand the final outpouring of God's wrath. Well, since I've just gone on and on, I'm going to finish this last point here on, on the Old Testament. Uh, which it comes up so many times, and, and uh, I think it's an interesting question. Does God change his mind? It's, or does he not change his mind? Let's, uh, what about in Jonah? This is such an interesting story. When the king of Nineveh heard about it, Jonah's message, he got up from his throne, took off his robe, put on sackcloth, sat down in ashes. He sent out a proclamation to the people of Nineveh. This is an order from the king and his officials. No one is to eat anything. All persons, cattle and sheep are forbidden to eat and drink. Well, how do you forbid animals to eat or drink? All persons and animals must wear sackcloth. That's kind of interesting. Everyone must pray earnestly to God and must give up their wicked behavior and their evil actions. Perhaps God will change his mind. Perhaps he will stop being angry and we will not die. God saw what they did. He saw that they have given up their wicked behavior, so he changed his mind and did not punish them as he said he would. Okay, the other example of this, um, actually I could list several others, but uh, remember we read this morning about God coming to Moses. I'm going to wipe these people out, Moses. Moses pled for the people, so the Lord changed his mind. All right, but now we counter this with verses on the other side. In Numbers 23, God is not like people who lie. He is not a human who changes his mind. Whatever he promises, he does. He speaks and it is done. And in 1 Samuel 15, Israel's majestic God does not lie or change his mind. He's not a human. He does not change his mind. And about Jesus, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That would sound like a God who does not change his mind. And in James 1.17, all generous giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or the slightest hint of change. And then in the very authoritative King James Version of Malachi 3.6, I am God, I change not. Okay, so which is it? Okay, you're saying the second. Now, in what sense does God not change his mind? I'm sorry, do we have a microphone? Absolutely. And as we interpreted the story here with Moses... God came to reveal something about the heart of Moses, right? Now, it appeared as if he changed his mind, that he changed his intention. 
I think what happened was, from God's perspective, wonderful. Where God says, look, if you're going to kill these people, strike my names from the book. And God is proud of his friend Moses. And here with the Ninevites, who God loves, he came with a message. And I think God was delighted to change his mind, to speak. But how does God not change? God does not change in character. God is the same in character through this entire rebellion, through everything. God is love. God is unselfish. God is other-centered in his love. God does not change in that sense. But in the context of this rebellion, when we're off doing all kinds of things, God has the appearance of changing his mind all the time. Yeah. I think God knew these people really needed a message. And what I find uh, so remarkable, if, if you go in the back of many of your Bibles where you have a list of all the kings of Israel, all the kings of Judah, and if you have in parallel with the timeline all of the prophets going down, uh, who would we think would get the prophets? Judah, right? I mean, wouldn't we think they're the people? They had the number of good kings, King Asa. There were a number of good kings through there. But uh, who got the prophets? Well, it was Elijah and Elisha went to Israel. Okay, the, the, the people who really were turning away from God. And who got a prophet? Nineveh. And this is the enemies, right? The Assyrians are soon going to come. They're going to destroy the ten tribes. They're gone after the Assyrian captivity. Now, God sends them a prophet. Okay, what does that say about God? That he's sending his prophets to people who are in the worst possible state, who need it the most. And so the wicked Ninevites, the capital of Assyria, they desperately need a prophet. They got a prophet. Now, uh, about 160 years later, they got another message from Nahum. And this time they didn't respond and, uh, and uh, God lost them. And uh, we need to, uh, and, and this would be something worthwhile talking about, but we are all God's children. And not just Israel and Judah, but the other nations. Um, get a prophet. God cares about them. Maybe just on that uh, if I can find this very quickly here in Amos, where we get these amazing words here uh, from God. Amos 9, verse 7. The Lord says, People of Israel, I think as much of the people in Ethiopia as I do of you. I brought the Philistines from Crete and the Syrians from Kerr, just as I brought you from Egypt. I, the sovereign Lord, am watching this sinful kingdom of Israel, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. And again, we have to remember uh, what that means. But uh, this and in so many other places where God is working throughout the world, not just with a select group. He used that select group for a very important reason. But we're all God's children. And I love that he sends his prophet off to, uh, uh, to places like this. Yes. I, I, I love the response here of uh, Jonah. Well, it's not that I love uh, what Jonah said, but, uh, but it is, uh, it's fascinating here uh, how he responded. Well, was Jonah happy when the Ninevites repented? No. no. Should he have been happy? Yes. Yeah, well, in Jonah 4, Jonah was very unhappy about this and became angry. So he prayed, Lord, didn't I say before I left home that this is just what you would do? That's why I did my best to run away to Spain. I knew you'd forgive those people. I knew that you are a loving and merciful God, always patient, always kind, and always ready to change your mind and not punish. And now, God, let me die. I'm better off dead than alive. If you're this way, God, uh, that's just too much to handle. And, um, you know, so we as Adventists, um, are we like Jonah, concerned about our reputation? 
And Jonah was concerned about his reputation, wasn't he? And his reputation seemed shattered by that whole story because here he comes with this message, you're going to be destroyed, and it didn't happen. And uh, we should be supremely concerned about God's reputation and about the good news. And what a statement of good news. Jonah knew the good news. Satan knows the good news. Knowing the good news is not everything. We have to like that God is that way. And I think there's, there's much to admire about the way our God is. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, how much there is to admire about you. In the Old Testament, where we have these difficult stories, but yet if we imagine that you in your great gentleness and humility and kindness, that you would stoop to such depths out of your love for us, that even these difficult stories we can appreciate and admire the methods that you have used. May we not need these methods that you have had to use to speak so loudly when your people are deaf to your voice. May we be like Elijah at the cave, that the wind, earthquake, fire, all of these things that you have given but that we respond to the still, soft voice of truth. And we pray that this truth will permeate our minds and that again we will be changed and that we will have something to say to the world about the kind of person you are. Amen.